Ryan's getting in place and getting a microphone. This is all from this book right here called The Book That Made Your World. And then the subtitle is even more power than, uh, than the title. It says, How the Bible Created the Soul of Western Civilization. This is written by a gentleman named Vishal Man- Mangalwadi. And he's an Indian. I ended up going and, and finding some of his podcasts, and he has been on podcasts with the likes of Charlie Kirk and uh, Jordan Peterson, uh, and the one that I especially liked that I saw him on was one called uh, the C.S. Lewis Society that is, you know, in the thought line of C.S. Lewis, and C.S. Lewis is one of the, if you think of mere Christianity and just the different things that he has written that has been powerful when it comes to the ideas and the thoughts and uh, of purposes of being a believer. So um, this book is along those lines and at that credit as well. And if you watch the man, he, of course, he has an accent from the country of India, but uh, you can tell, whew, He's smarter than, <laughs> he's forgotten more than I know without a doubt. So Ryan's got quite an a outline to go through and we're going to get through as much as we can tonight and then we'll do more next week. And after you hear some of the things you want to hear tonight, you're going to want more of this next week. We probably could go a whole year on this stuff. I thought it was interesting. One of the book chapters in this, he just parallels everything with the the Bible and the Western society. And let me see if I can find it real quick. But he talks about, he parallels the, uh, what do you call it? The career of Kurt Cobain and, uh, and Bach. It's quite interesting. And I heard him talk about it. And just you think I would never have put those two together, but he masterfully shows how that is interwoven into, I'm trying to find the exact title, but I've lost it. Anyway, but it's, it's master woven into what the Bible, what we're facing right now, um, and thank you if you're joining us online, what we're, I think what we're facing right now in culture is the idea that the Bible is irrelevant, that it's a book of, of antiquity, that it's something that has no uh, grasp on society or any of the norms that we face today. And Ryan is about to show you that the opposite has been proven, that the Bible has, even in the day that we live in, has accelerated society. It hasn't little by little faded back, but many of the things that we find in our values, in our culture, in our norms, in how we treat humanity used to not be, but have been interwoven through the Bible and specifically the, the uh, culture of this country. So Ryan, take it from there. I'll stop you as needed. So, Sure. Just to expound a little bit on the author Um, He became a Christian at 14 and was delivered from his addiction of shoplifting and lying, Um, which is pretty crazy. Uh, But he ended up going to university to study philosophy and found out um, he was looking for truth. I think a lot of us um, at that age when we're going to university is, you know, we're looking for meaning. We're looking for the truth. Well, grew up in India under Hinduism. And I'm, I'm sure you're going to get to this, but where they believe in millions of gods. Oh, yeah. So, so. Uh, the thing about India, and I'll talk a little bit more about that next week, but India, um, it's Hinduism has its origins there. Also, Buddhism. And then it, it was actually ruled uh, by Islam for about 800 years or so. So there's lots of things going on in India uh, over the course of its long and sordid history. Um, but he found out from his... Uh, 
from his professors that they didn't really know truth. Um, and so he ended up going through lots of different books to try and find truth. Um, there was a story from the, the group that he lived in, uh, from the Gupta there, where their idea was that you, nobody knows truth. Everybody has a little bit of truth. What it was is this parable of um, there's an elephant in a room, and there are five uh, men that have ropes attached to the elephant, and each one only knows so much about uh, the, their, they're blind, and they only know so much about the elephant from what they're holding onto. Uh, but what he got to is this concept of revelation, which is, well, you don't have a concept of blindness unless someone can see, right? And so their whole idea is based on something that, well, you wouldn't, if everyone was blind, no one's blind. <laughs> so it's a really interesting concept there. But what he did is he tried to find truth in the religious writings and he ended up looping back to the Bible, the, the, uh, the religion of his youth. Um, and as he was reading over it, he finds that it's written in a way that's very different than other religious writings. So after he... He graduates from university. He goes and he starts setting up a missionary into the lower caste system in India. Um, and while he's there, he's writing his first book. He doesn't speak a lot of English. His wife does. His wife, Ruth, speaks English. She had an English education. So he's writing his book, and when he, she didn't have, or when he didn't have enough work for her to do, because she was translating it for him, uh, she would go out and into the, the village and try to, to be of good service. And so she went out and she's talking to the children in the village and she comes across a young, a young girl and asks her, hey, um, how, many, how many siblings do you have? And she goes, well, three, maybe four. And she goes, well, which is it, three or four? And she goes, well, three, but the fourth one's almost dead. And so his wife is like, oh my goodness, can you take me to see your, your, your siblings, see if we can do anything to help? Well, she ends up following the child to a hut, a thatched roof, sun is blocked out for the most part, just barely streaming in, and inside, is an 18-month-old little girl that just looks absolutely horrid, like pus coming out of every orifice of her body, crying, can barely mutter any words. Ruth freaks out a little bit and is like, what can we do about this? Have you seen a doctor? And so they, they, the mom comes in. There's an exchange of trying to get this baby taken care of. And what ends up happening is she you know, is like, well, we can't do anything. We don't have the money. So I'll give you the money. And so the wife says, no, 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 we can't do that. I don't have the time. I'll, well, I'll give you the time. Take, get your husband and go. Says, well, my husband has to watch after the cattle. She goes, well, I'll pay for a day laborer to watch your cattle to take your baby to the hospital. And she goes, okay, I'll talk to my husband when he comes home. So Ruth goes back to her home and calls her husband, Vishal, and he comes and the same thing happens. And finally he gets angry. And he says, if you're not going to take this child to the hospital, at least kill her and put her out of her misery. And if you don't take her to the hospital, I'm going to call the police and they're going to come over here because they're killing this baby. And finally, one of the elders of the village says, just go with her, go with them, take the baby to the hospital and get her fixed up. She's there for two or three weeks. They get her fixed up at the hospital. They bring her back. And this happens again where the, babe, the same baby is in the same situation and they convince her to take him to the hospital. They get her to the hospital, she recovers, she comes home, within the next two days she's dead. The concept that they, they couldn't believe at the time that female infanticide was a thing in that part of the world. And it's because the, having one little girl was fine, but having two was too many because of the, the strain on the economics of the time. And so 
he, he writes this, he says, the village did not understand Ruth's compassionate impulse to save the little girl because 3,000 years of Hinduism, 2,600 years of Buddhism, 1,000 years of Islam, and a century of secularism had collectively failed to give them a convincing basis for recognizing and affirming the unique value of a human being. Something we take for granted that is taught to us in Genesis, that we are made in the image of God, and so is everyone else. And it's foreign to us because we're Americans. The thought of Arabelle, sitting there suffering would be something that would just, we would be the moment with Blakely Joy, the moment. But you have to factor in the thinking of that time, the caste system, the value system, the secularism was, she's a little girl, it doesn't matter. But what Brian's, Ryan is building a case for is how the Bible changed our way of value system and thinking. Keep going, right? Absolutely. Um, so the, where the, the, the author set out to find out where did this concept come from? Why do we care? Why is, do we have this concept of valuing basic human life? And from him, he's convinced that it's the Bible. So what is the Bible? The Bible is a unique library. It's 66 books uh, of a collection written by at least 40 authors over 1,600 years in three languages, and yet it tells one cohesive story. It's a meta-narrative that begins with the creation and ends with recreation. It gives an expanding, progressive, and yet coherent view of life in the world. It explains reality and the human situation. It gives purpose to life, meaning, and meaning to the human quest for morals. And it gives us hope in the face of an awful evil. So the book itself, it takes each individual uh, human uh, concept that we have that is good, and he walks through how the Bible gets us there. Uh, in order to get through a lot of this information as quickly as possible for in a setting like this, I've broken it down to go through a quick history of, of the Bible itself. So starting in 31 BC, Rome becomes an empire. Uh, it had been a republic, it had become an empire thanks to Augustus Caesar declaring himself emperor. It's very important because uh, between 6 and 4 BC, and this is uh, disputed when Christ was actually born. But Christ was born, uh, and that's when they start living and writing the New Testament. And what's crazy about that time is they started writing it in a, in a Greek. Now, that sounds weird for being in Rome, right? But the common language that people would use for trading, the most common language, was Greek. Uh, I don't know how to say it. It's coin, I believe, is how that's pronounced. I have no idea. Uh, but that's the language that the New Testament was being written in. Uh, and again, it was a trading language that was used throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, Christ's time comes and goes in 313 AD, and the Emperor Constantine issues the Edict of Milan, which then accepted Christianity. About 10 years later, it became the official religion of the Roman Empire, legitimizing the Roman Catholic Church. Now, this is crazy because the uh, uh, Israel was a tiny country, still is a tiny country, inside of a massive Roman Empire at the time that encompassed most of, if not all, of Europe and Northern Africa. And this little country, within 300 years, uh, what was considered a cult at the time, had become the religion of the entire empire. This is astounding. Twelve men who were <laughs> the, the disciples who were ready to kill themselves uh, at the death of Christ somehow found the courage, right, uh, I believe it's from the resurrection of Christ, they see him, they get this courage to go and turn the entire world upside down. So by 313 AD, it becomes the, uh, 
the religion of the empire. Here's the interesting part about the Bible. In, uh, so St. Jerome lived between 347 and 419 AD, and he translates the Bible into Latin, which is considered the Vulgate. That was the only version of the Bible outside of the original scrolls that existed for a thousand years. So what's interesting here as well is a great man uh, who lived between 354 and 430 AD. His name is St. Augustine. This guy writes the foundation of what is Western Christian thought. Uh, on Christian Doctrine is, is the name of the particular paper that he had. Um, he had writing on music and identified it as divine due to its mathematical predictability. He uh, Basically, he's the reason why we have polyphonic music, why we worship, how we worship, instead of, say, old Gregorian chant. If you ever want to be bored out of your mind, go, go on Spotify and look up Gregorian chant. You'll be, at first, you'll be uh, you know, amused at how they're able to make those throat noises, but that was worship back then. So thank you, St. Augustine, for approving of Delivering us. Yes, delivering us from that. Which actually, Allison still gets dressed in the morning to Gregorian chants. Don't you still, Allie? Ooh, yeah. 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 <laughs> um, also, th this is what's crazy, too. This set the foundation for some things we'll talk about later. But he, he, um, he taught that all sciences known to the pagan philosophers at the time were useful for interpreting the Bible. So, and so, therefore, students ought to be taught languages, history, grammar, logic, and the sciences. So we'll talk about this a little bit later next time, but this concept, as you already mentioned, of that the, um, the world tries to separate Christianity from what, what they think is theirs, right? And that's not the case. If it wasn't for great men, believers, setting things in motion as far back as they did, we wouldn't have nearly what we have today. So a pivotal moment happens here. In 410, and again, the Roman Empire uh, is being besieged by what they considered barbarians, or the, uh, I believe the, uh, the Germans at the time. Uh, the sack of Rome happened in 410. What happened there, the fall of the Roman Empire, leads us into the medieval ages, right? Um, do you mind if we publish this after? I mean, you're just, this is just your outline. Yeah, it's just my outline. That's so still we'll defined. put this out so you can see the dates and the time sequence of these things happening. Yeah, and all of this is verified. I mean, it's common knowledge. You hop on Wikipedia or grab an encyclopedia and see this yeah. timeline. Um, so what happens is uh, the fall of Rome results in people groups uh, of Europe fragmenting into many different groups and kingdoms. Over time, the, the general population became illiterate. So you come from Rome, people speaking Latin and Greek, and you, know, you have one society holding a language uh, together, and as that's fragmented, all the people go back to some pretty basic living and become unable to read. Um, the only literate members of society at the time were the clergy, uh, which consolidated power into the papacy, or the pope, in the power vacuum created by the fall of Rome. So before you go any further, think of the sequence here. I like this lady that ministers, her name is Billy Broom, and she always says, oh, what a plan, oh, what a planner. That the enemy planned for during this medieval age for people to become illiterate where they didn't have any way to, to, to know the word of God, to be able to read, to be able to, what we take for granted. I mean, we start children with what? A, B, C, D, that none of that existed. I mean, all of it had been passed away because the, only the clergy, interesting enough, only the clergy were the ones that were literate and knew how to read. And so thereby, and I think you said it in a minute or did say it, they have power. So the Holy Roman Empire pops up here. The bishops become the only literate people among the people who they served. The church, and this is uh, 
because, the, again, all they had was the Vulgate. You have uh, the higher-ups being able to read Latin. Oftentimes, they even kept the Vulgate away from the clergy. But uh, the concepts here were if the church was the only one that could hear God's voice, they were the only ones who, should, who, they, who, who knew who should rule. Right? So the concept of the divine right of kings, of uh, this person's the emperor, and I say so. Right? Um, and again, this, during this time, the church does gain a lot of power, and it becomes corrupt. Even in recent history, mom grew up in a certain uh, religion, and they did not read the Bible. They, the priest read the Bible. They didn't have a Bible in their home, and we have. How many do you have in your home? More than one, probably, right? So they didn't even have that because they were not, that wasn't for the lay people. Right. It was the priest. So even my mom's, you know, mom's about to be 83 at the end of this week. But even in our, her lifetime, that suppression of the word of God in the life of the believer, even as recent in our history, and we're talking, you know, 400 uh, AD right now, but see how the enemies, even in modern history, wanted to suppress the Bible. We didn't have a chance. Keep going. So Western civilization became the Christendom. That's how they referred to uh, all of uh, basically Europe at the time. Uh, the Pope became the authority figure in all matters, including if the sun revolved around the earth, if Henry VIII could get a divorce, and if the Bible could be translated into vernacular. Vernacular is what we speak. It's the common tongue. It's, you'll hear that a lot. It's what the, the lay people speak, right? Bishops became more loyal to the Pope than to the people of God. The church, almost, uh, the church owned almost all areas of higher learning and kept even the literate people away from the Bible. So that's an important thing. There was no state-funded uh, education. That happened much later. Uh, so the problem here, though, is that they become drunk on power, and they even persecuted Christians just for writing scriptures out. Uh, they called anyone who they didn't like or who didn't agree with them as heretics, which means they could burn them at the stake. The church fell into, into mysticisms as well, such as uh, one church, this is crazy to think of now, but one church having some sacred artifact, like a piece of the cross of Christ, like they would have a chunk of wood and they would put it in under a glass thing and say, look, there's a piece of the cross of Christ, and they would compel people to come and look at it and pray at it and then pay to have the remission of sins or to have them not be in purgatory for as long. Crazy stuff. Uh, also, uh, the crazy thing is that the church would allow the rich to buy high-ranking seats, such as bishopships, which is kind of crazy. Okay, so during this time as well, and I'll cover a little bit more of that later, uh, you have monastic traditions. So you have monasteries, you have these very pious, uh, pious people, uh, men, going and, and copying the old Greek, right, and keeping the, the, the Bible alive and also making sure the Vulgate is staying alive. But those folks inside those monasteries were driven oftentimes by a, a pious relationship with God to, to develop things like technology. So during this time, and I know a lot of people say that the medieval times, you didn't have anything good come out of the medieval times. It's like, there's a lot of stuff that was really cool that came out. Um, the flywheel, uh, they developed systems to end toil. Right, so um, in Genesis it talks about how we will fight with the earth as part of the curse of the earth, and it talks about toil, which is kind of endless, mindless labor. And oftentimes, in even order to eat, you had to like thresh wheat, right? Well, they developed machines that would do that for them, using mills and flywheels and using moving water to be able to help and do that. They also developed 
technologies like eyeglasses and, and spread those out. So the, the monks, uh, they say that what really led to the Renaissance is monks being able to read well into their, their years and spread knowledge well into their old age. And eyeglasses made that possible, which is pretty crazy. Yeah. All right. So for a thousand years, we're dealing with Christendom. And then I have this next section, I call it the Hall of Heretics and the Reformation. So uh, all these people, the, the church considered heretics. And this is a really uh, amazing time in history. And again, oh, what a plan, oh, what a planner. So let's set the scene a little bit. In the mid-1300s, England had a three-tiered hierarchy. This is foreign to us, all right? So uh, the top is the intellectual elite. elite. They spoke Latin, right? Just like the Vulgate. The Vulgate was their book and only they could read it, right? So uh, the next one was the nobility, and, and they spoke French or its Anglo-Norman dialect. Uh, some scriptures were available to them, but not really. And then you have three, the illiterate peasants. And get this, they spoke early English. <laughs> we were doomed from the beginning. <laughs> they, they, they spoke early English, and the elitist scorn, scorned even the idea that the Bible could be translated into such a peasant dialect. Yes. All right. So the crazy thing is, and the reason why is because translation of complex ideas would be difficult if there was no concept of the idea to tie it to a language for communication. Right? Um, it's like trying to explain a three-year-old, uh, you know, how a diagram for electricity works. It's just not going to work. There's no concept there. It's just does, not going to happen. Right? So you had to develop that first before you could even tie it to some of the deeper meanings in the book. So elitism. Uh, elitism is a, is a common human issue, right? So you have the Hindu caste system where they have elitism. You have, uh, even now, you have some people like, oh, you have a college degree. I know more than you, all right? Th that's rampant, right? That's a human condition, elitism. And what it does is it keeps others down. It uses everything, including language, education, and religion to suppress the masses. Okay. Now, before he goes into the next part, which is very fascinating, parallel that to the spirit of today. If, you're, if you watch TikTok for anything, anybody that refers to the Bible has got a better grasp on, grasp on it. They have more understanding. They're more compassionate than anybody else. So we all are in this race to be the best human possible at the expense of everybody else. <laughs> Ironically, we're making ourselves uh, above other people by saying we're most compassionate and we're standing on top of everybody else. So interesting how elitism is not completely dead. So keep going. Yeah. Um, so a gentleman comes on the scene. His name is John Wycliffe. Uh, he's a professor at the University of Oxford. Okay, so at the time, like you said, all uh, higher learning was the church, right? They trained bishops and monks at the universities. In this case, you have Oxford and you have Cambridge. Both of them are uh, part of the church. So this guy is a professor at the University of Oxford. He translated St. Jerome's Vulgate into Middle English by hand. How many of y'all hate taking notes at a, in a, at a lecture? This guy took Latin and by hand rewrote the entire Bible. That's insane. Like, the guy had nothing better to do, and that's what he did. Um, this, the thing about this, though, is the church was kind of asleep at the time. You know, the, it's been a thousand years. They, 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 got the, they got all the power. They could do whatever they want. So this threatened to destroy the whole edifice of clerical domination in matters of theolo theology and church life because, you know, when you, I mean, we've read the Bible. If you haven't, I encourage you to. It's the foundation of everything that we live for. But there's nothing in there about the Pope. 
<laughs> Nothing, right? So Pastor Brian talked about the scripture that they base it on, which is like, on this rock I will build my church when he's talking to Peter. It's like, no, on the revelation that Jesus is the Messiah is the foundation on which he built his church. Not Peter. Peter's a cool guy. He did some great things. But, all right? So, uh, the translation of the Bible into English would be a social level, a leveler on a hitherto unknown scale. The Bible preaches equality. All, all would be is it all would be able to read Christendom's sacred text and judge them both, judge both the lifestyle and the teachings of the medieval church on this basis. The very idea sent shockwaves through the complacent church establishment of the day. And that was a, a quote by Alistair McGrath. Now, when this Bible came out, and there weren't very many copies, uh, Wycliffe and his friends were, were copying the Bible and getting it out. Once the church got wind of this, they, they labeled him a heretic. Now, he... He survived. He was uh, a hero at the time for other reasons, so they had to kind of leave him alone. But anyone caught with a copy or even a page of Wycliffe's Bible could be tried for heresy and burned at the stake. That's how much the church did not like the idea of common people being able to read the Bible. All right, the next guy, I can't pronounce his first name, but that's okay. Uh, his last name is Erasmus. I uh, lived between 1466 and 1536. This guy also wanted everyone to be able to read the Bible. So he retranslated the New Testament from the original Greek to Latin. So he didn't use the Vulgate. He didn't use the thousand-year-old manuscript. He redid it from the original text with a couple of major differences. And the first one is that instead of translating repentance to do penance, he translated it to be penitent. So the concept there is like, I don't know if you're super familiar with the Catholic Church even today, if you sin, you do penitence. Like you say Hail Mary's, um, Our Fathers, and there's like a number of them, and that's how you gain forgiveness. Well, uh, Erasmus translated it to be, be penitent. So our concept from a, a Protestant perspective is to repent, to turn to 180 degrees from that behavior, right? Huge, massive change. So before he goes to that, see how that's still under attack now. That there's a lot of modern day preachers under the tent of grace have totally gotten rid of repentance. And how ironic that the spirit of that bondage is what it is, still is, tries to rear its head today where even current day pastors are like, we're all under grace, which is absolutely true. But Jesus was very specific when he told people, go and sin no more, which is repentance. So that, that revelation and the way that he translated that Bible ultimately shattered the Catholic church's ability to exploit people economically for the forgiveness of their sin. And this is where, this guy predates Martin Luther, which this guy, oh my goodness, the uh, chutzpah of this guy. Martin Luther. Martin Luther. And have people heard of Martin Luther before, right? Martin Luther King was named after him, uh, the Protestant reformer, right? All right, so he might be the most famous of all the reformers. Uh, he was convinced through his reading of the Bible that the he church... He lived uh, oh, yeah. 1483 too, so just... Yeah, so he lived chronology. just after, yeah, 1483 to, uh, to 1546. So um, you're, the, the following is, is Wycliffe and then uh, 
Erasmus. Erasmus, and now we're in chrono- chronological order to Martin Luther. Yes, um, and he read the Bible. He was again; these guys are a part of the elite system. They could read Latin, right? And but they were not uh, as interested in the power structure as the as the Pope and the papacy was. So these guys were trying to to change things. And Martin Luther is a big name there. Um, he was convinced that the church was corrupt and had lost its way due to his reading of the Bible. So first thing he did was he wrote the 95 Theses document, which laid out all of the issues that he had with the church at the time uh, that conflicted with the Bible, especially after Erasmus, trans, trans, translation was available, where he saw that huge difference, and neither the church nor the pope was happy with Luther's accusations. So the guy takes these massive complaints about the people who are in power and nails it to the door of the church in his town. Like, okay. So what happened here is this led to the Diet of Worms. That sounds terrible. It's a German thing. Diet of Worms is like they go sit before a lot of big wigs and they interrogate you. Okay, that's what happened. It's Diet of Worms. Um, Luther stood before the emperor and many church leaders. They laid his books out on the table and asked if the books were his and if he stood by their contents. He affirmed the first question. Yeah, those are mine. But asked for a day before answering the second. That night he fasted, he prayed, and he returned the next day to say this. And this is a direct quote from Martin Luther. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in the councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures. I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. Or basically, here I stand. I can do no other. He stood in the face of the most powerful group of men in all of Europe and all the world at the time and said, I'm not recanting what I have said. After a few days of deliberating, the church labeled him a heretic, forbade anyone to give him food or water, and made it so that anyone could kill him without legal consequences. The guy told the truth, and they put a target on his back. Good thing, though, he had a friend named Frederick III, had him kidnapped and smuggled him into Wartburg Castle. So instead of him going home and getting murdered, his friend basically threw him in a dungeon in a castle. (laughs) So what's crazy here is that while in hiding, Luther translated the Bible into vernacular German, and that became the basis of the German language from which peasants would learn to read and be further educated. Did you hear that? I mean, just by him translating, that just snowballed literacy for German people. Absolutely. Yeah, so... He made it so where people, who, they could speak and eventually read what they were already speaking. So they didn't have to translate anything. He translated it into the vernacular so every person who could read their own language could read the Bible. One of the other things that, because uh, Martin Luther had a lot of reforms, but one of Martin Luther's calls for reform was the universities in 1520, aiming to put the Bible back into the center of education. He appealed to Christian nobility which brought in money from places other than the church. And he began the trend of holding the state responsible for education, not just the church. All right, Martin Luther. 
Moving into William Tyndale. And if you recognize it, like Wycliffe, Tyndale, these are common associations that we see. If you go to Mardell, you'll see a, a Tyndale something or a Wycliffe. These are very powerful things when it comes to the Word of God. So William Tyndale lives between 1494 and 1536 A.D., during his time, the church was profoundly corrupt. As we talked about earlier, they were selling, you know, you want a bishopship? 10,000, whatever, you know, and you could be a church leader. Um, and those guys, they made the rules, right? Um, they were like, oh, you want to be forgiven of sin? Pay up, right? Um, or like, hey, <laughs> one of the other artifacts that they had, these are Jesus' baby teeth. I was like, how would you know? Make a pilgrimage, come see his building, yeah, and then pay us, and you won't have to spend so long in purgatory. By the way, where's purgatory in the Bible? It ain't there. All right, so Luther's books, okay, so Tyndale is at Cambridge, and Luther had been writing all these books, and they were being smuggled into Cambridge by way of the river. Uh, we've talked about both of them being the church institutions at the time. Um, and at this time, the priests were twisting scripture markedly and conveniently for their own purposes. Uh, what's crazy is that uh, many of them didn't even know where the Ten Commandments were in the Bible or could quote them to you. These are priests. They didn't even know the basics of Christianity, right? Um, Tyndall grew very upset at this realization and made a vow uh, because one of the priests said, it's better to follow the Pope's law than God's. Tyndall lost it. And he said, he made a vow that one day he would make it so that a peasant boy behind a plow would know more about the holy scriptures than the priest at the time did. And he did it. He did. He sought out permission, so he tried to go the right way. He sought out permission from the bishops to get permission to translate the Bible into English, and he didn't get it. So what he did instead is he snuck out of England, which was illegal. So he left. He was a part of the church. He's you know, working at, uh, at Cambridge, just up and left. Um, and he got help translating the Bible from the Lutherans. While translating the scriptures, Tyndale made sure to flesh out language that was markedly different from what the church was using, including the term for church, which I didn't copy it in here, but it's, uh, it looks like iglesias, which is the, the Spanish word for it, right? And when you go back and you look at the, uh, the Latin there in, in the Greek, it actually means just a group of equals, that's the church, is the gathering of like-minded, equal believers. The idea of a democracy, the idea is an equality. So he changed those languages to mean more specifically what the original said. Um, and it made it look more, you know, they would say instead of the church, they would reference these people, which means there was a separation from what the church was saying. Uh, his translation was the first English translation to take advantage of the printing press as well. So Gutenberg, uh, the print and there's a piece in there about technology. Uh, we didn't, the West didn't really get the, the good printing press until Gutenberg. And so what he what they were doing is they were using that to create prints of the Bible, and they were smuggling them into England. The bishops perceived Tyndale's translation as a threat because it transferred power from the leaders to the people, and it implied that the Roman Catholic hierarchy, right, with the Pope and the bishops, was more Roman than it was Christian. Tyndale was burned at the stake for his trouble. Tyndale's death marks the end of medieval times. So what's interesting with that thought real quick, think about that, that they were so upset because now the people had the power. <laughs> it's, think about where we are. 
That you, when, who we are as a republic, we the people. One of my favorite statements is to tell the government, when people tell the government or senators or whatever, you work for us. What a, what a weird concept. But this is all precursor to where our founding fathers had that idea that it's of the people, by the people, for the people. I'm jumping ahead. Oh, absolutely. Um, all right, so again, oh, what a plan. Oh, what a planner. Uh, how many people know who Henry VIII was? The guy that really wanted to get a divorce, right? So because of all the politics at the time, uh, he had an inability to, to produce an heir with Catherine of Aragon. Uh, he sought to annul his marriage. However, the Pope refused his annulment. As a result, Henry VIII drew upon the Reformers' influence and created the Church of England in 1533, of which he was declared the supreme head of the Church of England in 1534. Still very political. Uh, but this did pave the way for his numerous marriages, uh, but also the Protestant Reformation to really take off in England, doing away with much of the Catholic Church's teachings in the process. This is an interesting statement. By the mid-1500s, because people had access to the Bible now, every alehouse and tavern in England became places of biblical debate. <laughs> Can you imagine that? All right. Uh, well, okay, what happens here is uh, a couple of versions of the Bible and wrapping up. But uh, the Geneva Bible, um, after Tyndale's death, Protestants gathered. So there was some back and forth and political turmoil in, in Europe at the time. Uh, after the Protestant Reformation took off in England, they become persecuted again from the following monarchies because uh, they wanted to go back to the Catholic churches back and forth. So they became refugees in Geneva and then they created a Bible in 1560 that had notes, references, and maps, kind of like a study Bible. This Bible was, no, it was the first study Bible and it dominated the English-speaking world. It was the Bible that Shakespeare read and it was the one that American colonists were reared on. Following that was the King James Bible. The King James Bible was written in response to the Geneva Bible to counter its republicanism and to reestablish the divine right of kings. The King James Version used much of Tyndale's translation, like lots of what Tyndale had already done, uh, and, in, and from the Old and the New Testaments. Despite its sanction by the crown, it took several decades before this version overtook the Geneva Bible's influence. So in, in closing... Uh, from the reformers' perspective, it was not enough for the Bible to be translated into vernacular. People had to be able to read it. That could not be done through cathedral schools alone. Every parish needed to educate every child. So the desire to read the Bible became the fuel that drove the engine of Europe's literacy. To bring that home today, the reason we can even, we have the ability to read, and we all take it for granted, right? <laughs> but the reason we have that is because the people wanted to read the Bible and you had very pious Christians doing the work of translating it and teaching people how to read. It's insane. And there's a whole another section on India itself that we'll get to next week about how insane that Bible translators had to be to translate and then to teach people how to read. So the impact here is that the church started studying the Bible. As they did, many realized that God wanted to bless all the nations of the earth that suffer because they do not know the truth. Believers who wanted to serve God resolved to make the Bible available to everyone in their native language. They believed that as the people came to know the truth, the truth would set them free. The translators had to turn oral dialects into literary languages. 
In the process, these linguists built the intellectual bridges over which modern ideas could travel from the West to the rest of the world. So, in short, you have England, because of the Protestant Reformation and its breakaway from the church, was able to start their literacy engine a lot quicker than Europe. And it resulted in massive leaps in technology and military strength at the time um, and the colonization of the New World. What happens after that is insane. How the church continued in its, in its push to educate, in its push to teach people to read and to read the Bible. And as England grew and it developed all these texts of technology, of the sciences that were being generated by, by pious men in the church, uh, we'll talk about the, um, uh, the scientific revolution uh, and how we went from uh, people who didn't know anything about, uh, you, you have like Aristotle, of course, but there's a crazy idea. Aristotle thought, logic in his brain, that a, a, if you dropped two rocks, one of you know, twice the size of the other from any height, of course, the larger one would hit the ground first. And no one tested that until Galileo did. And the Leaning Tower of Pisa, he's like, and he drops a cannonball and a musket ball and he hit the ground at the same time. Nobody thought to test that in a thousand years or two to 1500 years. Too busy. Too busy, yeah. But the concept of science, of us, the scientific method of, being, of observing and testing and being skeptical of your own ideas, foreign to the world until the church really took off with its literacy. So we're going to publish Ryan's notes up to that point on Facebook, or if you want me to email them to you, I'll be glad to. So just fascinating. We'll do this again next week and, and more impact of the Bible. But it's, we take for granted that we all have a bunch of these in our home. We can pull it up on our phone if we don't have one with us. And that was, even 100 years ago, an unthought of idea. 200 years ago, it would have been not even fathomable. So God has a plan. I believe that, um, that, that God is up to something in the days that we live in, that, the, that his knowledge will cover the earth as, uh, as the waters cover the sea. And I think that he's up to something amazing. Thank you, Ryan. This has been good. A lot of study has gone into this. So next week will be part two. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We believe that your word, the word is life to those who find it and health and healing to all their flesh. And so we believe that's your purpose and your plan. So we receive it wholeheartedly, knowing, knowing that it carries your anointing and carries your heart. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.